Well, kids, we are so glad that you're with us today, last Sunday of the month, which means family service. You're very much a part of our church family. And so as you've noted already, we are a people that love to, 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 to sing God's praises. We gather together. Stephen began our service with a call of worship. So we, what we enter into together is a commitment as local believers in this body to lift him up with praise and with our lives. So we sit under the word now. We've read scripture together. Uh, Pastor John uh, giving us a, a pastoral prayer. And, and now our time to be able to, to understand God's word. We believe that there is power, that God's word does not return void. Uh, so all the older people around you, the, uh, your folks, your parents' age, just a little bit older than you, little teenagers, uh, and, and senior adults all the way, we believe that the Holy Spirit, he who indwells us as believers, that as we listen to God's word and we seek to understand God's word and abide in Christ, that we can actually live out and live in a way to glorify and honor Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is our hope. He is the one uh, for whom we make disciples. We, we encourage other people and we call other people to give their lives to Jesus and follow after him and help others come to know him as well with their unique giftings and skill sets and influences. All these things capture our lives. And so this is, we believe, a call for your life. The greatest of news you can ever hear is to come and to know Jesus and celebrate him. As last week, as Pastor Stephen did a wonderful job expounding for us and finishing off 2 Peter chapter 1. In that, he anchored us in treasuring this truth that we have. And if you remember in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1, we saw that the, the anchor, the foundation that the apostles stand upon and that we stand upon, anchored firmly, is upon the Scriptures. And he told us that men of old were moved, the prophets of old were led by the Holy Spirit to give forth this word. They spoke prophecies both of, of calling the people of God to repentance, a turning from their sin and a trusting in Jesus. So this changing of mind and allegiance to, to turn your hearts back to God, to turn your hearts to Yahweh, the one true God, Father, Son, Spirit. And, and so there was a call there, but also the prophets regularly gave foreshadows, prophecies of one that would come, Jesus, who would come, the, the eternal Son would take on flesh, would fill all the promises that, that the Scriptures have for us concerning Him. Jesus fulfilled them all. And that we can live in a way anchored in this truth that's given to us, this unchanging Word, this God-breathed Word and the testimony of Christ written down then for us, that we anchor ourselves in this Word given by men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit realizing that now today, in our, in our text, in our first few verses of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, that others have been led along, other men who are coming into the congregations, able to influence them, are being led along not by the Holy Spirit, but by greed and by sensuality. We'll talk about that word in just a little bit. But the idea is this, it's a charge to the church not to be fearful, but to understand that if I'm not anchoring down and abiding in Jesus Christ, treasuring His Word, here's what's going to happen. That the baits of the world, that the enemy is sending others into our lives to try to lead us astray. So we're either anchoring our lives upon a Word that was given by God to men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit, or we will be carried off by false teachings. So today we're going to look at two components of this central big idea. Here's this big idea this morning, verse 1 through 3, that we are to abide in Christ by the Scriptures that were produced by the men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit or risk being carried off by false teachers and their teachings. 
Now that sounds scary, and it should be sobering. It should make us alert. It should make us aware like a good cup of coffee. Mm. should make us aware. I got excited there thinking about coffee. I apologize. But it, sh- it, should, it should wake us up, but it shouldn't give us fear. It should rather give us joy that we have given our lives to the only one that all the enemy can do is try to counterfeit. All he can do is try to fake it. All he can do is take the truth and twist it. But he does twist it, so we want to make sure we're anchoring our lives in Christ by His Word, abiding in Jesus Christ, walking out the Scriptures as we obey the Holy Spirit. And here's what we're going to see this morning. First, we're going to look at, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we're going to look at the nature of these false teachers. So what do these false teachers do that come into the churches and gain influence? Secondly, we're going to look at the actual bait that the teachers are using, okay? So let's look first and foremost in verse 1, that this idea that false teachers, 1A, false teachers often build personal trust and brand loyalty before fully implementing their philosophy. And what's their philosophy? It's the opposite of what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30. In John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, that, that the God sent as the forerunner, this prophet that would come, preparing the way for Jesus, making the way for the Savior, calling all through, going all through Israel, the countryside, and calling people to repentance, to turn and to prepare their hearts, to soften their hearts, to get ready for the Messiah, the King, the Promised One, the Christ. And when Jesus comes, John the Baptist says these words, He must increase, I must decrease. I must decrease, He must increase. The false prophets have a philosophy that's the opposite of John the Baptist. These false teachers that that come in, they gain trust, and then they teach an opposite philosophy. In order to to, to do what they desire to do, the greed in their hearts that wants to pry upon the congregation, to prey upon them, they must increase. And so Jesus must decrease. We're going to look at some applications of how this happens in our own world on a regular basis basis even today. You know, the serpent, he slithers in. He's sneaky, right? He's sneaky. That was one of the questions. Uh, Pastor Rome did a great job leading through our Through the Bible workshop last weekend. There's a lot of questions about the serpent who came into the garden. It made me think about serpents. And so I did some Google research. This is a warning for you right now if you are afraid of snakes. <laughs> I gave a warning. Sarah, didn't, Sarah told me not to say it, but I'm going to take that just as I'm going to do it anyway, okay? So I got curious. I started to think, you know, snakes come in places. We don't want them to come. And I started to think, how do snakes get into our houses? Isn't that crazy? So I did some research, some high-quality Googling. And here's what I found. I found five reasons, five common ways that snakes get into your house. We don't want them in our house. If you're a person that keeps snakes, I love you. But put them away before you have me over for dinner, please. Well, here's the deal. Here's five ways that snakes find their way into your house. Number one, they come through your garage. A little crack in your garage you didn't take care of. Or a little crack will seam in the door. They can get slender. It's unbelievable to sneak into your house. Number two, they can come into your house through the, a little mortar that's fallen out in your bricks. Or the little spot between the, the brick and the siding. Little holes there, they can get in through that. Number three, they can, they can smell mice when they get in your house. And so they can crawl up your house and get in through the faucet. If there's a hole there, they'll sneak in and get in your house. Number four, this one really disturbed me probably the most. Those of you that are gardeners, we got any gardeners in here? Raise your hand if you're a gardener. We have anybody that likes to garden some green thumbs? Wonderful. Well, watch this. So snakes, when it gets cold, they like to climb up and get into pe- to plants when they kind of nest down in it. 
So when it gets cold, you don't want your plants to die, so you pick them up and bring them into your house and put them inside, and then that little guy gets out and explores your house. And then the last one, the most disturbing, I don't think it happens here, maybe only Australia because it goes the other direction, is your toilet. They could come up through your toilet. which is So now that I have thoroughly have everybody's attention, and if you dream about this, I just want you to remember the sermon, okay? Remember the sermon. Let it be a helpful device to remember this text. Serpents have always had a way to get in where we don't desire them. And that's what Peter tells the church. And he's going to give next week, we're going to look at three examples in the Old Testament scriptures of how the wicked one and, and, and people that are given over to wickedness find a way to lead many people astray. And he gives these case examples of how, hey, these false prophets, these false teachers, all through the history of the people of God, have found a way to come in among the people of God and lead many astray. And he tells them in a very serious way, but loving and honest way, and they're coming into your congregations and they will come as well. So be alert. Don't be fearful. You have an, an assurance of salvation. You have a faith of equal standing as the apostles, so abide in Christ, but realize that there are false teachers that will come in among you and will come in in two ways. Now, in Jude, we talked about Jude as like a sister book for Second Peter. A lot of similarities and themes. In Jude, the false teachers come from outside the congregation. So it would be, they would be outside of our congregation, outside of our fellowship. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 20. And in 2 Peter, what we see is that the threats are coming from inside the congregation. So they're either coming from uh, either one of the elders in the church, that the guard has been put down so much, so little to sleep, that the other elders aren't holding them accountable in the teaching, or uh, from among the congregation. There's people very gifted and skilled and likable that gain trust and influence and then lead in time many people away from the fellowship. And so we need to be aware of this. And, and you'll notice the terminology I used here of, of brand allegiance or brand loyalty. That's a, that's a modern phrase, but it captures the heart, I think, of what is taking place here. Brand loyalty. We've heard that, that saying. And so I asked one of our members, uh, Dr. Ty Spradley, he's a professor in the communications department. I said, can you help me understand brand loyalty? I hear this term a lot. And here's how he helped me understand it. He said, he said this, he says it's an intentional strategic process targeted, targeted, keyword, at consumers. The aim is to create a need and identification between the brand and the consumer. So most branding uses research, evidence-based strategies, but they target consumers. And here's what happens. The branding, therefore, is the result of intentional pursuit that creates loyalty in the consumer response. Two key words, targeting and loyalty. Targeting and loyalty. Now, uh, before we apply this to a church context, some of you may have a car that you're a brand you're, you have an allegiance to or some kind of brand of clothing or anything like that where you're like, I am this thing. This is the best thing and it's awesome and I will buy this until the day I die. Anybody like that in here at all? So here's what happened. No one's going to admit it, but you're looking at each other, so I know several of you are. You have a brand that you have such an allegiance to, and here's what happens. It's not a problem, but here's what happens. Our allegiance becomes so much to that brand that we can no longer see the flaws in it. We become fans of the brand more than we do objective, reasonable people. It causes us, as love causes us to look over a multitude of, uh, uh, of, of shortcomings, brand allegiance and loyalty causes us to not see numerous possible red flags. That's what's happening here. 
people are coming into the church and making a profession of faith for long enough to gain enough of a following, but they do not have a possession of the true faith. And their greed takes over, and they're leading many people astray. And this is the warning that's given to the body of Christ, not to scare them, but to anchor them. To anchor them in the truth. Because all that the evil one can do is destroy. He says they are destructive. They're destructive because they corrupt what's true. And we look at the book of Revelation, that's what we see again and again and again and again. The evil one, he corrupts, he takes what's true and he creates a counterfeit that looks similar, but it's destructive. And so be aware, we want to anchor down in our lives upon the truth and faithfulness of God's word, joyfully and faithfully abiding in Christ. And that's what God gives us as a local people of God, that we can know each other well enough to look each other in the eyes and to be honest, of those possible lures that are coming into our life. And so let's look secondly at some of those lures. Look at verse 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, we notice now, we looked at the false teachers and how they gain credibility. They have to be in there long enough to gain trust. But eventually, because they have a philosophy that's the opposite of John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, uh, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. The false teacher's philosophy inevitably is Jesus must decrease so that I can increase. And it's going to happen with the people that they're teaching. You've got you to minimize Jesus enough to make him a consultant for your life. They don't get rid of the word Jesus, but they minimize Jesus enough to where he becomes a life coach. He does not become your Lord. And we notice that in verses 2 and 3 that false teachings often promise peace through, or we might add plus, these three components. Popularity, self-lordship, or prosperity. Let me identify each of those here in our verses 2 and 3 so we see what we're talking about. He says regarding popularity, and many will follow. So he's talking to the believers and saying, this is going to be big enough of a movement. These false teachers are going to be effective enough that many people, meaning you will notice when this starts to happen, many people will follow. So we're going to be aware of the, the allure and the lure of popularity. That still impacts us even though we're adults. Number two, and many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality. I've coined that as self-lordship here. We'll unpack that in greater detail. And then down in verse three, like a Ponzi scheme, the false teachers reproduce and stir in their hearts of the people that they lead astray what they really desire, which is greed. He says in verse three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Deceivers, just like Satan, who was a liar from the beginning in 1 John 3. So let's go back and look at the first bait, this first lure. Imagine we're fish and we get to see this, this wonderful lure go right by us. Does it catch your eye? So I'm going to ask you one of the next steps questions. is going to be, of these three, which of these two most catches your eye? So imagine you're a fish and it goes by. Does this have any appeal to your heart right now? Here it is. Peace plus popularity. Peace plus popularity. So it might be Jesus plus popularity. All of these will present Jesus as a means to something else. He'll be an add-on. So, so Jesus, in a way, just becomes a useful, convenient tool to get what you really desire. Acceptance from the broader culture you desire. Whatever that culture that may be different for each of us. So many will follow, he warns. Now the spirit of the age is always a powerful powerful force. The lunch table. The lunch table. Many of you that are 
students, middle school students, high school students, I don't know if elementary age students, I should have asked if you all eat at lunch tables or not, if those are assigned. Are those assigned, Karsten? They are, okay. When you get older, they're not assigned anymore, I think. I don't know, things have changed a little bit. I graduated high school three years ago, so I don't know what it's like anymore. But I remember, I remember being in middle school. I went to the same school, same, born, born and raised in the same town. So, but still, every year, even though I knew most of the students, I had such anxiety on that first couple days of school. You know what I'm talking about? When it's getting closer to lunch hour, and the whole time you're fishing with your friends. Hey, what time do you got lunch? Your second block? I'm third block. Oh, no. Okay, hey, when do you have lunch? Because you're so fearful when you go into that lunchroom, all the tables start filling up. And you're thinking, where am I going to sit? Isn't that a horrible feeling? Am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be the kid by myself? What a scary feeling. That doesn't go away when you finish high school, does it? College students, does that go away? No. Right, young, 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 young adults, does that go away? People in your late 20s? What about people here that are in your 30s, 40s? Does that go away? Some of you are just like, I got my kids. I don't know where I am right now. Others, what about our senior adults in the room? Senior adults, does that go away? Maybe it lessens, but you still have a group that you want to be with and embraced by. So we need to be aware that when many begin to go, it will cause us often to see things differently. So we will choose Christ and anchor in this word that was given by men who were led along by the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures. We will anchor down in this word, no matter what others begin to do, even friends Colleagues, neighbors that begin to leave and follow after others that are offering an acceptance. Powerful, powerful word. So, does that anchor your eyes as that goes across? Who are the main people that have a voice in your life? Who are the main people that have your ear today? Who do you read? What personalities do you follow? Who are the people in your life that have the most direction? The people that you would say are closest where you would say, I, I want to make sure I'm in lockstep with that. Now, I want to be clear. We talk about word, worship, service, family. We, we want you to be devoted to the word. We want you to be in a group. We want you to be family together. A part of being family isn't we just go and do what everybody else is doing. Because there's a danger here that we see is if a teacher or a preacher or a peer, a member, begins going and doing something else, that we're family, but our allegiance isn't to them. Our allegiance is to the Master. And do you remember what we read about in verse 1 about these false teachers? They forsake even the Master, leading many astray. So we love each other enough to be in each other's lives. There's soul care, there's ministering to each other, there's loving each other in all our different seas. All those things come along. But there is an awareness to say, I love you enough if I see you start pursuing the crowd, the many. I love you enough to say something. And I hope you love me enough to say something too. To make sure we're testing all things by what? The Scripture. We're not going to read it, but you can write down Acts 17. Acts chapter 17 is a great reference to read here. Acts chapter 17, the Bereans, these people that hear uh, Paul come and preach the gospel. And he preaches and they hear what he says. And what do they do? It says they were noble. They were more noble. Why? Because they examined his word with the scriptures. They tested it. And, and of course, they found it was, it was right. It was true. So we want to be like that. We want to examine that. Examine all the voices that have. Examine the TV personalities. Examine the places you spend your time to realize there's a draw and a very powerful 
powerful momentum there. So we want to be strong. We want to be like that big rock in Lanana Creek. That, that thing's never moving. It's just going to stay there forever. All the water's going to go around that. We want to be this strong, strong rock. Number two, what kind of bait? So where does that one rank for you? Number two, peace plus self-lordship. It's this word sensuality. And sensuality. And many will follow their sensuality. What is this word? So don't think when you hear sensuality, don't just think of like physical lustful things. This sensuality idea has a much broader understanding. As a matter of fact, the easiest way I think to capture this word for us is to understand it's the, it's the, it's the opposite of the eight virtues we looked at trying to memorize a little bit of in chapter one. You remember those eight virtues? These eight virtues that are, that are yours and we're to be abounding in them more and more. Those eight virtues. So he says, in these things, make all the more effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Your virtue with knowledge. Your knowledge with self-control. Self-control with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. The opposite of those eight virtues, and we're to be abounding in them more and more, that will be fruitful, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What's the opposite of those eight virtues? In a word, sensuality. Sensuality. Here's what sensuality says. Sensuality says you are what you feel. You are what you feel. So look into your heart and what do you feel right now? Act true to that. If you feel like doing something, do it. And, and it makes these dangerous statements like this. God loves you because He... That part's not dangerous, but here's how they tag onto it. <laughs> God loves you, and because He loves you, He wants you to be happy. So what do you want to do? I mean, you're only alive for a few years. What do you want to do? Do it. You see, the lure of this I mean, more lame statements like you only live once. These different virtues, they, they, these false virtues, they take power in our culture. Sensuality. You are the Lord of your life. If you want it, do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. And here's how it begins to seep into the life of the church. It says, do you feel like gathering with the saints? You don't? Well, you'd be, you'd be a phony if you gathered then with them, so don't gather. Because authenticity is the key motive of sensuality. It elevates authenticity over holiness and godliness and the eight virtues that we saw. Authenticity wasn't one of the eight, was it? And certainly neither is sensuality. So sensuality is married to pride. What, what's the philosophy of the false teachers? The opposite of John the Baptist, 3.30? He must decrease, I must increase. Listen, this one is a very powerful bait. Kim Weir, our women's director, uh, a few months ago sent me this study by Ligonier Ministry. So they do it every other year. They did, it came out in 2020, so it's probably pretty accurate still today. Every other year they do the State of Theology survey. You can look it up on your own later. Okay? You can look up it up on your own. So, so Ligonier, they partnered together with uh, Lifeway Ministries, and they did this survey of 3,000 Americans. They do it every two years. 
3,000 people. So it's, it's substantial enough to be, uh, give us some pretty quality results, okay? So they, they interview Americans, and then they also interview evangelical Christians. These are people that certainly believe Jesus is God, that he is the only way of hope and eternal life. The inerrancy and truth of God's word is the, is the final authority for our life. That Jesus Christ is the only way. He's worth our lives going and making disciples. Unless we're born again, we will not uh, see the kingdom of God. So, they did the survey and they asked a number of questions. And I want to go through just two questions today. We'll go through one again, one next week. But two questions to give us an insight to how powerful sensuality is. To have to minimize Jesus. It slowly minimizes Jesus that we may be made a greater. So they asked to respond in a Likert-type scale. So, so here's a statement. I'm going to read it for you. You, part- you participate right here, okay? We'll take it together. But you don't have to raise your hand or anything. So there's five responses. I'm going to do the statement and strongly agree, agree, uh, uns- you know, I don't know, uh, and disagree and strongly disagree. So here's the statement of evangelicals today, 2020. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Here's the statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Of evangelicals surveyed, 26% strongly agreed that Jesus is not God. One in four. Like, I hope they were strongly misunderstood the question. Because that is an essential to the faith. So in our new members classes, we go through these essentials. This is an essential to the faith. These are things we say, I will, I'm willing to bleed and give my life for I, on these components, believing this is true. And if Jesus isn't God, what are we doing here? Which gives me an idea. By the way, guys, public service announcement, Valentine's Day is in two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. And we have got your back. So there is an all-expense-paid coffee bar in Henderson Hall also happens to be a new members class, part one of two, on February 14th. So you can be there. We'll go over these essentials like this together. And if that doesn't just warm her heart, I don't know what will. <laughs> the danger of decreasing who Jesus is is very, very real. May we ever be aware of exactly how the evil one works and how slowly changes. Things that feel so good and sound so good, yet in reality are hollow. They're twists. Jesus is God and He's worth your life. Give your life to Him. Abide in Him. If you're not trusting in the God-man, the eternally begotten Son, Father, Son, Spirit, the Father would send the Son, the Son being born of the Holy Spirit, taking on flesh. Jesus didn't cease to be God the Son. He simply took on the full nature of a man. And He came and dwelt among us, fully God, fully man, needing to eat, and needing to sleep, needing to drink, all these things. In perfect communion with the Father, He lived, abiding in the Holy Spirit, leading His ministry. And Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law, lived a sinless life, laid His life down on the cross as a make-right sacrifice for sin, teaching the very ways of life. That those who abide in Him, Jew or Gentile alike, Samaritan, we will have eternal life by faith in Jesus and what He's done for us. We're adopted by faith. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, defeated death, taught the words of life, ascended to heaven where He is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as believers. 
And the Lord has not come yet, as we're going to see in chapter 3, because He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all may repent and come to eternal life. But He will come again one day in judgment. And if you don't know Christ, the wrath of God abides on you today. And you are storing up wrath for yourself as you continue on in your own sinful attempt to make yourself clean. And you cannot. But if you will but repent and trust in Christ, you have eternal life in Jesus. A sure and confident Savior. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but also abundant life today, being and making followers of Jesus. No greater aim than to worship Christ and to know Him with our lives. Amen. These are the words of eternal life. If you don't know Christ, trust Him today. Bait number three. Peace plus prosperity. What do the false teachers do? Their greed exploits the congregants. Their greed exploits the congregants and also the greed in the congregants' heart. Statement number two that we'll look at from the Ligonier survey, I think that gives us an insight to how deep the hook has been set in an evangelical, even in our church's hearts, and it's been boom, yanked. Once the hook got down to the gut. Listen to this. Statement number two. The Ligonier survey asked, or, or stated, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people were good by nature. We're good by nature. Jim, that guy from the office, had that, uh, what was that news show that came on that showed good stories, made us feel good when we watched it for a while. I guess I'm the only one that saw that. I shouldn't have used that as an example. But people are good by nature. 46% of evangelicals agreed that people are naturally good. 46%. Perhaps that's you in your heart, but listen, sociology and pop culture and feel goods do not determine truth. God's word is the final authority. Because here's what happens. When we, think, when we think we're mostly good, we're thinking, I, I got my life mostly figured out. I mean, I got some problems where I come short, but I'm, I got most of this. I need Jesus to help me with some other things. I mean, he can give me some helpful things. But I think I, I, I like my life. And that's exactly what's taught. Jesus becomes a useful tool to gain money, to gain health. This is the, the, the blasphemous, evil health and wealth gospel that sadly through our, our, our media is, is being broadcasted all over the world, to Africa and Asia and so many other countries. It is dangerous. It's foolishness, but it turns Jesus into a useful stepping stone rather than the Lord Himself. Because here's what it is. When you turn and trust in Christ, when Jesus calls to die to ourselves and to follow Him, Following Jesus exposes idols in our heart, doesn't it? Now we do go to Him, and God does heal, and God does work today. And we seek Him for these things, and we ask Him believingly. But when that stage of life doesn't come, or those things that we do hope for don't come, the Lord often is uprooting and tilling up these little secret idols in our life that we're thinking, if I just have that, I'll be perfectly satisfied. And we're reminded as we follow Jesus along the way, no, Jesus, you really are enough. And we feast and we begin to treasure His Word. And His way of life is the way of life. He is the way. That's the good news we have in Christ. 
a great video if you're wanting to spend some time American Gospel. Many of you actually recommended it to me. I watched this great video that documents the danger and the allure of wealth and greed of pursuing that, of thinking, if I get Jesus, I'll get this. Dangerous components, how these things seep into people's lives. When we look at scriptures, we define ourselves and understand what does scripture say about our nature? We're not good. Yes, God made us very good. He made Adam and Eve. He made them male and female. He made them very good. All creation, very good. But Adam is our head. And if we were in his place, we would have done the same thing. Make no mistake. When Adam fell, made a very bad decision and rebellion against God, a deliberate decision to disobey God. And so too came depravity upon all of his descendants. But God, who is merciful and gracious, did not execute judgment entirely upon Adam right there. But he gave it news in Genesis 3.15 of hope of one that would come from Eve that would indeed bear the burden. He'd be struck by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. The snake crusher would come, as many have said. This is the way of life. And Scripture details this story. And we look at Israel, the people of God, and their hearts, and we see their hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who among them can trust it? See, sin has impacted us. We know physical death, of course, is real. But spiritually, we're dead in our sins. We don't long to please God or the things of God. Even the good things that we do are not done for the purpose of glorifying our Creator. We long for the creation, and yet say, Creator, I don't need you. I'll do this. We see it with Babel and we see it in every culture ever since. We see it in our own hearts. The sin has touched us in every sense of the word. We are depraved. What does Psalm 14 says to the idea that you and me are mostly good? The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. What about me? No, not one. No, not one. And what does Jesus say in his interaction? No one is good except God alone. Do we correct Jesus and say, but we're mostly good, right? No, not one. We are nothing to our salvation, but our sin. The Lord is the Redeemer. Look over in your Bibles to page 976. Look at page 976. If you're using a Pewback Bible. I don't know what your page 976 is. Probably not where we're going. Ephesians chapter 2 is where you want to turn if you've got your Bible here today. And if you don't have a print Bible, we want to make sure before you leave this room, you have a print Bible that is your own. So let us know. Ephesians chapter 2. In this story, in this text, we see the outline of our testimonies. In just a little bit, after our next steps, we're going to see Lily Dodson who has trusted Christ, we're going to see her follow obediently in the waters of baptism, proclaiming her allegiance to Christ publicly. And we'll see the same flow of this story that's in all of our lives who know Christ. We'll see it in the life of this little nine-year-old girl. Now all of us have verses 1 through 3 in common with every human being that's alive on the face of this earth. Ephesians chapter 2 says it like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were mostly dead? You were, I mean, you were pretty good? 
you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. We all once kind of lived. We all once lived. in the passions of our flesh, sensualities, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's every one of our stories. Different details, different locations. The names are changed to protect the innocent. But we can all relate to that, can't we? Everybody in this room for sure can relate to the first part. And most of us, because we know, because we have the second part. And we, by God's grace, we live in response to see the third part. But if you don't know Christ, let today be the component where verse, this second part in verse 4 impacts your life. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, so He withholds the, the, the wrath that should be poured on us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we say what? Amen. We've been saved and raised up with Him. We saw that in 1 Peter. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been adopted, forgiven, brought in to eternal life. Christ's righteousness was put upon our place. Our sin was placed upon Jesus on the cross. It's been paid for. We've been declared righteous. And look what we read. Verse 7 so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the way of life. This is the good news. After this service is over, you'll see ministry leaders up here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you come forward and say, I want to give my life to Christ. If you've never been baptized and you want to follow Christ, being obedient in baptism, you trusted Christ and you say, I want to be baptized, there'll be somebody up here to follow up with you. And what it means to, to follow Christ obediently in baptism, as we'll see in a few moments with Lily. This is the way. This is the way of life. There is no better aim. Amen? This is the way. Let's look at our next steps. Three components for us. Number one, how discerning am I regarding my, my media? And I just listed a number of different components that we take into our life. So how, how discerning am I to right now, who are the people that have my attention? You know, in a lot of marriages, a lot of marriages, as... Each person sits here. They oftentimes sit on this side of the routine. And what happens is time goes by. They just spin the routine and they don't see each other and they begin to drift and they become aware, unaware of the main influences. And you got one spouse that's 20 feet that way. They drifted. And the spouses are completely unaware of the influences in the other one's life. It's amazing how easily in our lives, even as believers in Christ, that our influences, we can become completely unaware of the voices and, and the impact upon our life of who is steering us and guiding us and nudging us. So take an assessment this week. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you and show you who are the voices, who are the people that are shaping my life? Who are the people? Bad company corrupts good character, as Paul quotes. 
be aware. So, so ask the Lord to help make you aware of that this week, for better and for worse. Number two, when it comes to these three baits, popularity, self-lordship, uh, and prosperity, what two of those three, which two of those are most alluring to you? And make yourself aware of these. If you don't have somebody in our church, if you're not devoted to a group in our church, one of the benefits is that you can confess those things together. Now, our ladies' ministry is kicking off this week. There's a digital group that you can get involved. Be known and be known around a devotion to the Word. Small groups are firing off. We've got lots of different opportunities. Men's lunch this Tuesday. Lots of opportunities to be known. But I challenge you this semester, lean in and share with, those, share with somebody in that group the two that you find yourself, your eye kind of catching as it goes right by you. Number three, practically speaking, reassess your calendar by asking, Lord Jesus, please grow my affections for you this week that you may increase and I may decrease. What's that look like in our lives? Just to ask the Spirit of God. Ask the Lord, would you, how can you grow my affections? Grow my affections for you this week. Whatever it takes, whatever it looks like. As a church family, shortly we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together, which is a beautiful way of growing our affections for the Lord who loves us, as Stephen told us last week. But another way that we see that in believers is that through the act of baptism, this act of obedience. One of the reasons that we believe so firmly that, that the ordinance of baptism ought to be done in the context of a church body is because we, in a way, as though we were at a wedding, would look and, and we'd hold that person accountable to their vows, to their allegiances. But what Lily is doing in being obedient to Christ, saying, I, I have confessed my sin and trusted Christ, and I'm unashamed to follow him wherever he leads me. He has made me new. And just as Jesus died on the cross bodily and was buried and he rose again, one day my body, this body will die. But I want to follow Jesus wherever he leads me and whatever he does in my life. And one day I will raise again to newness of life and I will be with him forever. That's what we see in her story. And so, uh, Carson, as you come to be able to to, to share Lily's story with us. I want to pray for us, and, and we'll be able to, to observe this beautiful baptism together, have our faith stirred before the Lord's Supper. Oh, Lord, you are good and you're faithful in all your ways. We thank you so much for your kindness. We thank you for Ben and Megan. We thank you for your grace that you have given them a but God moment. God, you've rescued them and saved them. You've given them a newness of life. We thank you for the many who have prayed for them, their grandparents and others, Lord, that, that these kids would come to know and to to walk in your ways. We know that this is only a work of you that this is possible. I thank you for Karsten and his willingness as a big brother to want to walk in this way and set an example as well. We thank you for your kindness to us and allowing us to observe this baptism. We do lift up to you, Lily, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, everyone said together.